You're listening to Christina's Room Podcast, a place where startup founders, entrepreneurs, and executives can find inspiration from me and other founders to grow awesome businesses and fulfill their dreams. My name is Christina Imre, and I coach VC-backed startup founders and mission-oriented leaders thrive in business and life. Hello, everyone. This is the last episode of our first series, Startup Stories, and our guest today is Carl Robinson, who is the co-founder and CEO of Rumble Studio, a SaaS tool that enables businesses, other content creators, and podcasters to create amazing podcasts quickly and time-effectively using a new model, which is asynchronous system, interview system, and I'm very curious to find out more about this. Welcome to the show, Carl. Hey, Christina. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. As you may probably assume, I'm a fan of podcasting and doing this show now, but I also promoted podcasting for a lot of years before, especially for businesses, and I will want to touch this a little bit, why it's important, but I also had a break of two years, so Maybe you will help me to not have such long breaks anymore. Yeah, and I would maybe. Love to, yeah, sure. And I would love to start with this because you are coming with a new option for us podcasters. And this is awesome. I would love you to educate us. What is different about async podcasting? How it can help us? What are the advantages, disadvantages? Just educate us a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I started by being an individual podcaster. I launched uh, the Voice Tech podcast. Uh, while I was doing a, a master's degree, actually, I was doing my internship. And so I was working a lot on my own in the lab, uh, actually building like machine learning models and stuff. So it was very kind of solo effort. And I thought I'd launch a podcast at the same time to raise my profile and speak to the people around me, have an excuse to sort of pick the brains of the experts and uh, and learn a bit more about the field. Uh, so that was the initial like impetus. Uh, and I quickly discovered that podcasting is a lot of work. You know, it's really takes time to do a good job on podcasting. You've got to research the guest. You've got to record. You've got to then edit publish market and then when it becomes so much work then you start to think about outsourcing that labor which means you've got to think about monetization and selling things on your podcast and, and it's just a you know just a snowballing kind of effect um and you know my podcast was the voice tech podcast so i was talking to experts in conversational ai um uh, smart speakers this kind of a thing talking to machines um, and so I put the two ideas together. I thought maybe I could use some of this cool technology that's being developed and is really accelerating very, very quickly uh, to solve the problem of podcasting just being a lot of work, essentially. Um, so that was where it came from. That's what, that was the pain that I felt. Uh, and then what? So fast forward uh, after, a, you know, uh, joining an accelerator and everything else, meeting my co-founder, we created Rumble Studio, which is essentially um, uh, a system which uses asynchronous guest interviews, as you said. Um, and the reason for asynchronous um, is because it's a stepping stone towards the um, automated, natural, spontaneous interactions between humans and machines that I, that I have a, a vision for for Rumble Studio. But right now, you know, uh, some of that technology doesn't exist and needs to be built, which is part of the, the reason that Rumble Studio exists. Uh, and the, the core building block for a machine to be able to talk to a, a human is this asynchronous system that we have built and is now live. Uh, and the way it works is essentially... Uh, the creator, the podcaster would set some questions up front, put them into Rumble Studio. Uh, you get a link that you then send to your guests. It can be one guest. It can be hundreds of guests. Uh, you can email them. Uh, or you can even put it on social media or your website. Uh, anyone who clicks that link uh, then goes through and uh, here's the first question that you set. 
um, and then drops their answer, you know, records their answer in Rumble Studio. Uh, if they make a mistake, they can re-record. Um, and then when they're happy with it, they move to the next question and so on and so forth. So it's a bit like a questionnaire, but for audio capture. I can see a lot of utilities, you know, also to create an amazing, huge library. Even if you have a question, I was thinking, how could I use it? Especially maybe I will try to improvise something new exactly around your system because I just mm. found you. And I, sure. I think it's very interesting where maybe I want to have insights from multiple people and I can just create the framing and then just send them the question and a lot of answers would come in in an audio format and then just uh, edit it. Your editing you system is also good, right? The editing system, we have an editing system. It's, it's rudimentary at the moment. So when, when your guests record their, their answers, these are separate audio files. So all the audio is pre-segmented. So you don't need to go through like you would a typical interview and chop it up you know, like analyze the waveform and find them, you know, where people start and stop speaking. So there's time saved there. And then within Rumble Studio, you can reorder the segments, you can delete the segments. We actually give you the transcripts as well. So you can quickly scan read what the person was talking about. So you don't have to, uh, you know, flick back and forth uh, within an audio editor to find the right bit. So there's a lot more time saving there. Uh, but we are developing a more advanced audio editor, um, a la Descript, um, you know, the the system that Descript uh, um, introduced to the market where they transcribe the audio into text and then they actually allow you to edit the audio from the text. This is definitely on our roadmap. We see a number of different software tools uh, providing this now and I think that's just going to be table stakes in the future. Um, and then uh, on top of that, we're adding a, a hosting system because we don't want people to have to then download the audio and upload it into another podcast host. Why not just host it through Rumble Studio? So it's going to be a fully end-to-end -end platform when it's finished. Right now, uh, we're focusing on the, the asynchronous conversational aspect, which is a challenge in itself. Uh, and the next part of that, once the, uh, the, the UX is, uh, is fully polished, is to add the, um, the dynamic uh, conversational AI-powered features. So, you know, as I described, you send your question, the guest answers. Currently, they move on to the next question. What you can do today is, once you've listened to their answer, uh, you can add a follow-up question, uh, a follow-up comment, rather, um, so you can say, oh, that's very interesting. You know, like this reminds me of something else that I've seen in my life. Next question, right? And that can simulate a real question, a real conversation. But what would be even better and, and really what podcasting is about is that spontaneous back and forth, right? Where you're asking the guests things that they didn't have time to think about uh, upfront. And this is where the conversational AI comes in, is that we can interpret what the guest said, uh, what they talked about, uh, the topic, keywords, even the emotion in their voice, uh, and then respond to actually what you know to the actual content of their of their first answer and that could be um a follow-up question so it can ask them for more information on what they talked about it could ask them to clarify a certain term that they used it could ask them for more details on something or to tell a story uh, it could analyze the emotion in their voice and say oh you sounded really happy about that you know what's the story there you know why are you so pleased about that so all of these things uh extend the conversation and get more out of the guest which means it's less work for you uh, you get more audio from the guest from just that in initial root question. Uh, but then also uh, there are other um, other roles that a podcaster plays that we'd like to emulate within the system. So podcaster doesn't just ask questions. They also reassure the guest. They also um, ask people to clarify or to, um, to repeat what they said, perhaps to speed up or slow down, to move close to the mic, to stop touching the mic, <laughs> all, these, all these kinds of things. Um, and so we want to add this kind of coaching ability into Rumble Studio as well, so that it can capture high quality audio and interesting answers from the guests. Where are you on the road of this conversational AI? I'm asking this because I, I come mm -hmm. from the field 
I was the CEO and co-founder at Echo, you know, exactly in AI, voice technology. So with my co-founder and now he runs the show, Adam Hojak, we developed a lot of system around this. So we were in speech and our speech emotional recognition and also okay. conversational AI to mm-hmm. find out a lot of traits about the person because voice is so unique, has those uh, specific kind of um, traits and we mm. used 164 KPIs for example from emotional recognition and mood personality traits and then a lot of things around this conversational AI that was intended to be developed later exactly as you said to create that kind of natural field but this is also a very different field and very unique compared to what you start uh, where you, when you are just podcasting or putting things together so I'm wondering knowing what it takes in the background. Mm. Where are you and when do you see this enabled for Rumble Studio? Yeah, for sure. So we've got two highly qualified data scientists, PhDs uh, working in Rumble Studio on this stuff. Um, we are currently working on all the, the separate modules that analyze the, the voice from different aspects. So the NLP and analysis of the words, the transcription, and also the, the, the characteristics of the voice itself a speed of speech, the emotion, these kinds of things. And then those all serve as inputs into the, the larger brain of the, of the model, which makes the decision whether to ask the next question or whether to uh, provide some coaching or, or take some other kind of action. Uh, right now, I believe we're working on the uh, speed of speech. I don't want to give too much away on the, the, the technical details, but uh, we're definitely looking at um, speaking speed as, a, as an easy first one. Um, and we've built the um, the conversational framework that allows us to take into account all these different um, attributes that we're measuring before we make a decision. The uh, question recommendation engine is coming later. I think that that's going to be the end of this year at a, at a minimum, maybe early next year. Um, and that can be used for two things, actually, not just the um, not just the real time uh, question follow up questions while they're interviewing the guest, but also as question recommendations for uh, the host when they're planning the interview. Uh, and what I'd like to see is to be able to tell Rumble Studio who we're going to interview and for it to just give you a list of recommended questions that it can get um, either from uh, like Wikipedia or something, like just to, because it understands the concept. It can get it from uh, search engine queries like Google, for example, to see what people are actually interested in searching on on that topic. Or it can generate them from scratch using models like GPT-3 and whatever's coming next um, and you know roll the dice on, on whatever those models churn out. So we've got lots of options. There are a lot of open source tools that we can leverage, uh, but we're starting from the basics uh, and just try at the moment, looking at the best way to integrate that um, AI follow-up question, AI coaching into the this asynchronous UX uh, format that we're inventing, which in itself is a, is a challenge. You know, it's very new and we're having to introduce it to the market, educate the market. So taking baby steps on that. You have a lot of things to educate the market on. I was thinking mm-hmm. also with your asynchronous way to interview guests, you know. So mm-hmm. that's always challenging for a startup because when your market is not hot yet enough, then behind you need to have the educational part, the promotional part, the marketing part. And so it is a little bit more hustle compared to a hot domain, let's say. But also the advantages are huge. And I would love to pivot a little bit because we entered in the technical details because we are interested <laughs> in this voice technology and it's absolutely a fascinating field to me too. Back to podcasting, why should startups have a podcast? It's a great question. I mean, I think um, startup founders shouldn't underestimate the, the value of personal branding or the value of 
uh, audio branding for their for their company and and audio is a fantastic probably the most authentic medium that you can choose to communicate with uh, with your audience um, and so I think it's great on a personal level for a founder to have their voice heard uh, and it's also great for a startup to just have a presence on the audio channels of the future because right now podcasts are as hot as they've ever been and they're just they're unstoppable in terms of the, the, the growth that they're experiencing we see it in the US and Europe and the rest of the world is catching up um, and this is just not going to slow down over the next few years just the investment in podcasts just keeps going up so you know, if we're not already at the point where you have to have a podcast, we will be soon. So it makes sense to, to get started now and make your mistakes early uh, and, and become established. And I see the world of podcasting or audio content and voice technology, which is another uh, sleeping giant, I think, um, converging because, you know, the killer app on smart speakers is content. You know, you ask for uh, a radio station, you ask to play a song on Spotify or Deezer or whatever, um, just because it's so convenient. And that happens at home or it happens in the car or it happens wherever uh, you can't physically touch a device. Um, and so I think as the number of voice search requests go up, as people speak to machines more and more and just ask for what they want, as opposed to typing it, brands and, and companies in general more and more will need to have audio content that can respond to those requests. Um, and, you know, you don't want when somebody asks about your domain or your company, you don't really want Google to be. Um, reciting the, the top line of Wikipedia, what, what you want is for your CEO or, you know, your communications, uh, you know, content marketing people to have some content ready to respond to that. Uh, and I think that's going to go from a, a nice to have to a, an absolute must have over, over the coming years. I will help you promote even more because uh, I was in this seat, you know, where I wanted to make businesses, especially startups at the beginning to understand the benefits of a podcast and voice, especially Google started to favor a lot of audio content and our devices are going in that direction, not just because they are so convenient, time convenient, you can listen in the car and everywhere, but mm -hmm. your voice you can use to, to just delegate tasks. And I saw that what they are preparing in the background. So voice will be more and more important. And the, mm -hmm. another part I like to mention is this kind of long-term branding. You don't want others to tell your story. You want to tell your story. And if you're nowhere to be found on Google or other search and giants, then guess what? If someone wants to harm, harm your reputation or your brand or your company, they can do it easily because you're no, nowhere to be found. And then if you want to tackle the mysteries, okay, how can I make my brand more stable and for long term, then involving audio, where you see that the big players are going to, then you establish yourself at the beginning. And I believe that now we are in a time where it's just not a question anymore if you should have a podcast or content in voice, any kind of content in voice, but it is a must. Yeah. I totally agree. I and mean, I, I gave you quite a technical answer because I can see, you know, from a technical background, um, I think a, a more business focused um, answer is just that audio um, can serve as a ground truth for all the other marketing that you currently do. You know, if you if you have a podcast, then you can record the podcast and then from that podcast, uh, create a blog post. You can create social media. You can create discussion. You can pull quotes out of it. You can do a lot of stuff once you've got that audio and it saves you doing a lot of the research on all the other marketing that you're currently doing. So that drives down the cost and it improves the ROI of the audio. So for me, it's a no brainer, like you absolutely should do it.
including the legacy. I even think about kids, you know, or, or my daughter when I won't be here. It's easier. You can have the content. The written content is perfect to have it all, but also to just listen to the voice of someone who's not here with you anymore and have mm. those lists of podcasts or audio content just to remind you to that person. It's so awesome to have for the history, you know, and yes. what what lasts in time. Yeah, right. definitely. The, the the back catalogue of a of a podcast is often uh, as listened to as the latest episode. And uh, and for what I understand now, a lot of the innovations in podcasting have have been around the dynamic uh, programmatic advertising. And now creators are being able to monetize their back catalogue just because they can refresh the ads on all those episodes. And as they're being surfaced because of these searches, uh, creators can earn more and more um, by putting ads on episodes they recorded years ago. So you're absolutely right. There's a there's a long term investment. And we don't even know the ramifications of this because in five years time, 10 years time, so many things will be different. And what we set up now, like little kind of uh, breadcrumbs, you know, Mm -hmm. they can be united through technology that will just reveal a little kind of snippet from your voice or an answer you gave on any kind of medium. And then just put them together in a library we cannot even imagine. So (laughs) I think it's very wise to to do this and just help yourself for the future of growth. And it's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Now back to your story. It's very fun, I would say, but also interesting. And I'm sure that many founders or maybe ex-founders or other founders who want to start a new company would love to know this um, entrepreneurs first what is this accelerator right you were in paris and this is the place you found your co-founder it's such a cool story (laughs) because especially for multiple reasons and you will tell us what is this entrepreneurs first what happens there because there are six locations around the world most in europe but not only in toronto i saw in uh India, I believe, and also Singapore. So things are evolving. In the US, it's not so much. Maybe they should take uh, an example here because um, as being involved in the VC world as well, I didn't see such a thing. And I was very interested to hear your stories and your co-founder version as well. So tell us about entrepreneurs first, how you found your co-founder and also the angle how is it to build a business with someone you don't know at all? Yeah, so Entrepreneur First was really the, the thing that made it all happen. Um, I was living in France, like I said, I did my data science master's, but I didn't have much of a network. I didn't really know many people here. Um, I knew that I wanted to, to do a startup, especially after I did a six months in a big company as a data scientist, which definitely wasn't the, wasn't the path for me. Um, so I was looking around for a way to do it. And uh, Entrepreneur First was definitely the, the key because unlike most incubators or accelerators, They don't require you to come with a co-founder and with an MVP or a prototype, uh, with an idea even. You can just turn up, um, go through the interview process, which is pretty efficient. You know, you have two interviews um, after the form and um, and then you're in. And the way the way it works is that they they have an equal um, ratio of technical to business co-founders like domain experts, they call them. Um, and so uh, they focus on only creating one-on-one matchups. So there's no kind of three co-founder teams. And you go through this process of matchmaking where and you, you know, they put you in touch. You, know, you have these events and there's an online platform. Uh, and you can sort through the profiles and, and meet these people very quickly and quickly you know, filter down to the ones that can actually uh, you think you'll be able to work well with and will be able to build out an idea with the kind of company that you want to build. 
Uh, so it's very efficient in that way. The standard of the people that they um, bring on is exceptional. Like everybody I spoke to was super smart. I just had my pick of super smart developer type profiles. Some of them are more data scientists and research, others more SaaS and you know DevOps type profiles. Um, so you can really find the, the, the person that's right for you. Um, and then once you found that person, you, you brainstorm, you, you do customer development, you call up, you know, you come up with ideas and then you validate those ideas by calling potential customers and seeing whether the problem that you think exists actually does. Um, and then if everything seems fine, then you start to develop that idea uh, with the view of pitching it to the Rumble Studio, uh, sorry, <laughs> for the, the entrepreneur first panel. Um, and uh, they will um, evaluate your idea and decide whether they're going to uh, fund you or not. And that's exactly what we did. Okay. And I would be curious about the synergy that was created. I know that your co-founder, I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's Joris, Joris, uh, the jo- French. Joris. Joris. Yeah, Joris Gary. Yeah. Gary. Okay. And he had uh, an experience before. He went through this accelerator. He didn't find what he wanted. And he started over and then he found he found you. That's and- right. Yeah. How was that for you? Because you were lucky from the beginning, let's say, but still you didn't know him. What was the thing that told you, hey, this could be it? What were the important traits you were looking in a partner that were proven to be right? Well, I was looking for commitment to doing a startup. That was one. And the fact that he went through the program twice showed a a real commitment because it's a grueling program to do it two times in a row really shows uh, a lot of grit and determination um and uh i was looking for someone who, because i you know i came into rumble studio with a, a an idea or a concept in my mind which you know as i said came from doing the podcasting so i knew i wanted to build a SaaS app um and you know i've worked in startups and founded startups you know SaaS startups before so i knew that was my thing and i was looking for a, a co-founder who could do that and so i had a pretty clear idea of the the skills that i needed uh, in a co-founder and above everyone that I spoke, not everyone, there was there was probably like two or three people that had the skills in the team that I thought were experienced developers who could build an MVP basically single-handedly, which is what Joris did. Um, but I think I, you know, I got along with him better. I had a better feeling about him than maybe some of the other founders, um, and I could see that he was completely committed to the to the startup process. So it was a it was a combination of those things, but it was skills plus attitude, determination that that really clinched it. How long it took for you? Because I know you worked on the project for weeks or a couple of months until mm. you were sold that this is it. How long it took for you to to be sure that yes, this is a reliable and could be that co-founder I was looking for? Um, well, we were working together, yeah, like you say, for two or three months during the the process. You, I mean, it's quite an intense process. You can see whether the person, you know, what the person's got by you know what they're coming up with. Um, and already he's, I think he started building, you know, he started writing code and started putting together some, some mini MVP. We had to pr- prepare the presentation and stuff so I could see what it was like communicating. Um, and so yeah, I think you quickly get a feel for someone and, and what they're all about. Uh, you don't, obviously you don't really know what someone's like until you've lived with them or worked with them for an extended period. So, um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, a relationship that grew over time. And, and don't, don't forget, he was, you know, the same process was happening in reverse. He was evaluating me, you know, like it wasn't just a, it wasn't just me picking him. He was picking me as well. So, but luckily in, in Entrepreneur First, like we were one of the few teams that didn't break up and have to find other, other partners, you know, like in Entrepreneur First, usually there's a lot of, um, 
celebrated failures whether the, the people come together they they work for you know a few days and then they break up and there's an announcement on the platform and then they find someone else you know and it goes through this kind of fail fast kind of model um inspired from the us uh, but we didn't joris and i were together from the beginning um i guess we got lucky in that sense that we were complementary you know i already had domain experience around podcasting and voice technology and i had contacts you know, in that, in that world, which is another massive reason why you should do a podcast if you're an entrepreneur, because it just puts you in touch with so many people. And I leveraged that network to get initial conversations, to get people um, testing our idea and, uh, and the first prototypes. Uh, and actually our first customers came from that network as well. So, you know, he could, he could see that value in me and I could see the value in, in him from, you know, being a solid co-founder and doing all the things that I wasn't so good at, you know, like being a developer, I've tried my hand at it and I can write code, but I'm never going to be there. 10 hours a day writing a world-class application like he has and other things as well, <laughs> things like finance and uh, administration that he just, he's just more diligent on uh, than, uh, than someone, someone like me. So we complemented each other very well. And I think that just came across. Could you also pinpoint some less positive aspects that you discovered moving on as co-founders and partners that you didn't foresee at the beginning? And it was uh, a little bit of work to handle that. Yeah, there's definitely been some of those. Uh, uh, we clash sometimes. Our personalities, although we're complementary, we're also very different. So the downside of being complementary is that we tackle problems in very different ways. Um, I think Joris likes to move very quickly and you know act or build stuff now and get feedback. I'm much more of a you know sit back and consider it, talk it through, get a few opinions, read some research online, this kind of thing. So maybe I'm a bit slow um, and while I well you know my, it's my style to take my time which I think leads to better decisions it's his style to like just get going and get feedback you know ASAP and there's there's really no like good or, or right or wrong to those approaches but they do clash at times uh, and it has led to some arguments so I'll be honest you know it's not it's not like everything's rosy at Rumble Towers you know it's like we, we do we do clash on these things but we do eventually come together as well and like you know decide a way forward uh, having advisors has really helped you know, we've uh, we've got a great advisor um, in the Wilco program, which is another accelerator we're in in, uh, in France. Uh, and so we have our monthly meetings with them. They talk us through, you know, talk through our issues and things like that. And we've got some independent advisors as well, which we've talked with some experienced entrepreneurs who've put us on the right path and and also validated the fact that all founding teams have clashes. And, uh, you know, we've got a, a great advisor called Phil Chambers, who has, you know, uh, spent some time with us and really made us look at things from a more of a business point of view and helped us to put personality issues aside and focus on like the the facts of the situation and the actions that need to be taken and when you get a, an experienced voice like that telling you it's fine this stuff is normal and this is what you need to do next it can really help you reset and uh and uh, it gives you confidence to carry on you know because it can be hard at times I focused on this topic a bit because we didn't discuss with other guests before in this series but it's so prevalent now, especially in this worldwide web where we are living now and startups and founders can stay everywhere and the remote workplace now, it's uh, pretty much usual, normal, and we won't go back to where we were. And so this is a big debate, you know, should I have a co-founder who I know before? Because if you study a little bit of statistics in startups, Many times they were friends, they knew each other, they worked before already, so they had this kind of uh, 
synchronicity and they mm. knew their styles and then they founded startups. But then again, you see a lot of failures there as well, because once yeah. they start to work on the same startup and it's a lot of mistakes, then things just go downhill and many startups dissolve just because of that. And so I also see more and more startups where you just uh, found your co-founder online. And this will be even more prevalent from now on because you can just mm. find a co-founder in Singapore, Asia, Australia, whatever you want and start building. So there are risks risk on both sides. That's why I wa wanted to see in your case, how did you solve this? It took a while. And maybe the best question for this is to ask you now after two years, right? Because you have two and a little bit of maybe two and two. That's right. Yeah, it's been just over two years. Yeah. Yeah. So after two years, where are you together? And if the startup is according to plan or there are things that you could have uh, foreseen before? Well, we've progressed further in our entrepreneurial journeys than we've ever managed to do individually or with other co-founders. So for that, I have to say thank you, Joris. You know, like you've got, got me further in this than, than I've ever thought possible, really. And yeah, now it's fantastic. It's exactly where I wanted to be a few years ago. And, you know, everything with startups, there's a massive level of uncertainty and, and risk. So you don't really have high expectations going in, um, but you do have self-belief. And, you know, that's what drives you through. Um, I would say the the product um is you know it's it's it works it's functional it's not um it's not uh maybe it's not as far ahead as i'd hoped because i maybe for the product wise maybe i had over you know over expectations on the, on the actual product in terms of like the ai features and stuff as i've learned from jerry's he's much more experienced in this than me ai does take a lot long time to produce especially when the one person who, who can build it is also building a SaaS application at the same time uh, now we've got two data scientists working on it things are, are speed are sped up a bit um but still there's a lot you can do with the with the mvp and there's a you know there's a lot of feedback that you need to get from users before you know you can't expect to build the the full vision that you have in your head and then see what the market says like and this is one of the things we're doing now is like we we're, we're building a bit and we're we're putting it in front of users um, but you are pretty much and, uh before others in this market right so I think we're the first. Yeah, I think we're the only ones doing asynchronous podcasting. So we're leading, leading from the front. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking for. I didn't find what I didn't uh, wanted to say something that's not true. So you are players in a huge market, I would say, where you also need to educate. This is a, the huge leverage mm -hmm. you have now, and I believe that you can be excited. But from the other hand, because you need to educate your clients, what were the feedbacks and what are the current feedbacks from your customers and especially those who already had a podcast before but switched to your solution? Yeah, so I mean, there's a few questions there, right? So the, <laughs> the initial feedback was all around the UX and this feedback came from me, which was a source of uh, arguments between me and Joris as well, because if, if all the bad news is coming from one person, <laughs> it's not great. Um, but then now that the, the product is uh, more developed, like the UX has improved steadily over time. It's, there's still work to be done, but it's definitely on par with B2B software out there. Is there still a bit more work to get it, you know, Apple standard, you know, B2C quality, um, but that will come. Um, so a lot of the feedback has been around the usability, I would say, because with an app like that, especially if you're targeting um, people who've never made a podcast before, 
they need a lot of guidance on what they should do, not just how to use the tool and like, what do I do next, but how do I make a podcast in general? Um, and so you, then you have to decide, well, are we going to provide that guidance in the app or do we provide it in content? Like, is that blogs and webinars and videos and stuff that they watch before they use the tool? Um, and that takes time to develop. Of course, with a product that changes as quickly as Rumble Studios, an early stage startup, developing how-tos, you know, tutorials and guides, it's almost a waste of time because it just goes out of date so quickly. So helping people get the most out of the product and understand it from that first use, go through the onboarding and actually get a result is the biggest challenge, I would say. So, you know, our initial, uh, you know, initial market that we were targeting was small to medium-sized businesses, because I, I still think today that the biggest opportunity right now in podcasting is getting businesses to start podcasting. I just think there's a, there's a huge number of businesses that don't have a podcast that would, just like websites, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, those customers need more help. They need consulting. They need more editing. You know, they need everything like the services on top of the tool. So now we're focusing more on the creators and the agencies who already create audio, as you uh, alluded to. Um, who know what they're doing end to end and are just looking for a tool to be able to do that faster, cheaper, in a more innovative way in, in, in terms of, you know, creation or selling, selling uh, services to clients, differentiating themselves from uh, other agencies in the agency's case um, and uh, in, improving margins, uh, increasing engagement as well, which is another massive uh, side effect of, of asynchronous is that because you can interview lots of people at once, you involve lots of people at once, you bring them into your world. Uh, and even reward them by publishing content featuring them. Um, and so, you know, this is uh, this is what we're realizing now is focusing on those those creator segments is a better beachhead market for us than focusing on the the, the businesses. Uh, and the feedback from them is slightly different. You know, they ask for slightly different features again. Maybe they want a Dropbox synchronization. You know, they want some kind of integrations. These these kind of features that we wouldn't build for the the businesses so much because they've got a workflow. But by and large, the UX stuff is the same, you know, like they're still looking for asynchronous conversations and they still need a way to be able to export that. But maybe they don't need as much in terms of editing features or, or certainly not hosting because they already do that themselves, right? For an agency, maybe they're more focused on just the creation, the audio capture, and then they can do the manual work, which they charge agency rates for uh, on the back end. So it affects the roadmap slightly, but it hasn't kind of completely, hasn't caused us to pivot in any way. It's just changed the priority of different features that we were going to build anyway. You did great answering all of my questions. So I think it was <laughs> not a problem for you. <laughs> Thanks. <Okay. laughs> I would be curious, how do you integrate different cultures into your perspective? And what do you think mm. you came as a, a pro or you brought in plus into your startup and also maybe the view about the world because you are from the UK and you lived uh, seven years in China and then in Paris and your startup is from Paris. So tell me compared to other founders you met, what's your trump card, let's say, uh, because you do have this cultural backgrounds. <laughs> what's my trump card? Uh, I don't want to just blurt out an answer. What can I say to that? Um, I think, well, one of my trump cards, I suppose, is the series of failures that I've made um, trying to start my own company and working at startups as well. I mean, I've had, I, I suppose, I don't know whether you call them failures. They're certainly not failures on a personal level, but one of the first big startup I did in, in China, we, we ended up doing it for four years, did it with a friend. Uh, so we, we got along great but we made all the mistakes that you could make when doing a startup. We outsourced the development and it just went on and on. We spent a lot of money. And in the end, we had an MVP that we couldn't launch and then the project died. So that taught me a lot about 
how to get a product built, you know, which is why I sought out a co-founder, a technical co-founder and entrepreneur first. Um, we did a smaller project, um, my fr- the same friend and I called Much Five a Day, which was this uh, iPhone app, which was a much smaller project, which meant we could spend a lot more time on the design. We worked with these two, uh, two fantastic outsourcers, a developer um, and a, a designer who both did an excellent job. So the quality of the, the work was just higher. We spent more time on fewer features so that the design was just better integrated, just looked beautiful. Uh, and we ended up selling that app. It got acquired, which was our first startup success um, and gave us enough money to live in China for the next few years. Um, and so that really taught me about the, uh, you know, how the attention to detail was really important. And I think that carries through. Um, and then working at uh, the product, you know, working as a product manager in that chatbot startup that I talked about, that taught me a huge amount about actually working in a startup. And that was the first time I'd actually worked in a team doing product management. It's a job I absolutely loved. I think it's just one of the best jobs that you can have in a startup as a product manager. Um, and taught me about you know chatbots and conversational interfaces as well, because that was part of the product. Um, so that opened my eyes a lot. And that that guided me as not only in the as to what I wanted to work on, which is this conversational interfaces, but also like how to build a product, you know, like how to run an agile team, how to work with designers and the business and how to communicate with users and, and all of these skills. And I've taken all those experiences um, through to Rumble Studio and try my best to, to use them uh, in, in the team today. Uh, the other thing I would say, and this is another reason why a podcast is, is fantastic, is by doing, you know, uh, having more than 100 conversations on Voice Tech Podcast, it really gave me a, a good um, understanding of the, the lay of the land of voice technology. Like when I, before I started doing that podcast, I really didn't know anything about voice technology at all. And after you, you know, more than a hundred conversations, you really have a very good idea of all the companies in the space and the level of sophistication, you know, like you're, you're very right to say, okay, you're talking about all these AI features, but how developed are they? You know, because there's a lot of CEOs just, you know, talking, talking about AI without really understanding it, or, you know, like having something that's half built, a lot of hype. And that's the kind of gut feel that, doing a podcast gives you, I think it, it, it allows you to feel, it allows you to know exactly what is, is possible with the technology today and what's likely to be possible in a few years, because you've spoken to enough companies that you can see the, the, the pace of development and the pace of change in that industry. Uh, and that is what gave me enough confidence to do Rumble Studio because I could just see how voice technology is developing. Like I, I knew that synthetic voices are going to get significantly better over the next few years because I've seen them get better over the last couple of years. And there are loads of companies in the space investing a lot of time and money. Uh, and the same is true for, you know, um, dialogue systems and uh, natural language understanding and, and all of these technologies, these building blocks that go together to form this, you know, incredible whole um, is, uh, yeah, everything's just developing very, very fast. And, it's, and it gives you the confidence to place a bet on all of that, I would say. And what would you say about the cultural differences? Because you did have a couple of shocks when you moved to China in Beijing and then when you came back mm. to Europe, seven years, it's a long time. And mm. why am I asking this? Because again, in a remote setting with so many startups who have employees all over the world, they have some struggles at the beginning, maybe to understand the way different cultures are working, but it's so precious when you can truly understand the differences and that hey, it's not necessarily something is wrong, but it's the way that they perceive reality. It's like with languages, you know? As many languages you're speaking, you you open up a new universe in your head. You become smarter, but literally, because 
every kind of language has a different structure of wording. And so knowing those words, and, and of course you do have the standard pattern of using a, some words that doesn't exist in other languages. So mm -hmm. some countries can be limited just because of their language, because they cannot think beyond you know, the unseen. Yes. Like the English is completely different uh, to maybe other languages. I, I won't enter in details, but for you, being in two different kinds of environments, uh, how did this help you to, to see the future, the business, reality in general, make you who you are today? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I'm consciously aware of it. I mean, on the one hand, I think... Um, living in different countries and learning different languages, as you say, it's the the, the key to, to the, the culture is the language, does open you up to, to new ideas. It makes you more accepting. It makes you more open to the different ways of doing things. You don't uh, reject the ideas. You, you might not agree with them. You might, and you certainly might not adopt them for your, as, in your own behavior, but you, you don't have that kind of knee-jerk reaction of, oh, you know, I don't like that because that's not the way I do it, which is what you notice in people who've never traveled. And in, and it really, you know, when you meet people who've never been abroad or never lived anywhere else, you think, ah, I see, like you're very from here and nowhere else. Um, and I think that limits your the, the way that you can think about things because every culture has a lot to offer um, if you, you know, open your mind to, to you know, what's available. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know whether, I don't know how much it's actually changed the way I do things, you know, even being, being open to ideas doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do them in you know act in a different way yourself um yeah i i, I don't know really <laughs> i don't know if i've you know i don't know if living in china and france has has changed the way that that i behave or maybe i'm just not aware of it so i i don't really know okay and that would be interesting to to see how what is the horizon for you because you are after two years i see you very down to earth balanced person not overreacting oh my god my startup is going so great everything is just peachy no i can see i can mm -hmm. feel the struggles you're not exactly where you want it to be you're very open about this let's see where you think you are and where you could need more help where are you with funding you had some rounds before maybe the family and friends type of rounds pre-seed rounds right and you had some help from the government because in Europe there are many programs that are you know, that are giving money that's not dilutive for the companies and I'm not sure did you had enough money to get to this place where are you in funding yeah so um we're very lucky to be in France because there is there are a lot of programs that help startups at the beginning like the, the ecosystem in France is fantastic much better than I thought it was before I came to France I have to be honest um so we've We've raised um, we've raised an angel round. We've we've had a government grant because we got the deep tech label. We are a deep tech company, which is an official thing in France because of our conversational AI. We've got two different um, schemes, which are like very favorable loans, which you can either pay them back or they convert into equity if you can't pay them back. Um, so it doesn't kill your startup. You know that they're startup startup friendly loans from from the, from the government schemes, um, and we're planning our seed raise. Uh, towards the you know the the latter part of this year like sort of q3 i'm going to start start raising uh, raising seed um and for that we need usage we need users on the platform and we need to see people actually using the features and getting value from them and i know that because uh, in entrepreneur first 
Um, and this is probably one of the, the criticisms I, I, I'd have about the program as it was then, I know they've changed it, was that we, um, after we got the initial investment from Entrepreneur First, the second phase of the program is setting you up with a huge number of conversations with VCs. So I've spoken with more than 60 VCs pitching Rumble Studio way too early, in my opinion, right? because we, we barely had an MVP and we certainly didn't have any users or anything like that. They try and push you to build something as soon as possible, sell, sell it as soon as possible and put it in front of VCs. But for the majority of companies there, it was just too early. But I spent an, an inordinate amount of time um, presenting and it taught me how to pitch to VCs, who, they're, who they are, the different types of VCs and what they're looking for, how some VCs can completely waste your time, um, how others are, are only looking for a sure thing. Um, but there are some some VCs and some angels out there who are willing to place you know place a bet on a startup based on the technology and based on the team. They do exist, but they're I think in the minority. Um, and so I know what I'm going into for this raise that I'm doing uh, in the latter part of this year because you know I've got the connections. I can go back to a lot of those VCs with a much more developed product. You know, like what Rumble Studio is today compared to back then is just night and day. Um, with a team of ten instead of just two guys in a dream, um, and uh, and some and some actual usage from paying customers who are on Rumble Studio, paying us either subscription, you know, self service users, or uh, we have some uh, you know service users, as in like uh, we sell some agency style services to actually help companies plan and then edit and release their their podcast. We're doing that on a on a limited basis, and some deals with bigger agencies and agency groups as well. So we've got customers across the spectrum in all three of our segments. We've validated the market. Uh, we're making money. And I think that's going to be very interesting for, for VCs when the, when the time comes in uh, the latter part of this year. Absolutely. I still feel that struggle that uh, maybe in terms of traction, you're not where you would want to be. Mm-hmm. And this is very, very important, especially for the safe haven that's called market fit. I'm not yeah. sure if you found your market fit yet because you, you mentioned a couple of different domains that maybe your main focus isn't startups and small medium businesses who don't have a podcast. I truly see a lot of potential in what you're doing. I mean, you are the first player. This is something huge. I mean, you are a unicorn type of business if you do things right. I'm pretty sure about this, but now it's execution, it's education, it's clients. What do you think stops clients to come to you? Because you are offering a very quick way to create podcasts, also very cheaply. So you do have what it takes. Of course, technologically, you need to improve, but still what you can offer already reduces the time you would spend on editing and creating a standard type of podcast. Mm -hmm. And they say it like someone who does this. I don't know, maybe even with 90%, maybe 80, 50, you tell me. What's the stopper? Yeah, so I think there's a few. Um, for for some people, they they have a very fixed idea of what a podcast is, and so they will just reject the idea of an asynchronous podcast out of hand because they would say podcasts they're all about spontaneous back and forth communication between humans, ideally face to face, and at worst remote, but definitely not asynchronously, right? So there are some companies or some people in general who just won't do a podcast that way. Um, but there are many who are open to that idea. For the, for did, the you had, just, did you have such feedback directly to tell you, no, I, I will never do this? Yeah, absolutely. Podcast. Yeah, okay. for, for sure. And this is just the kind of no that you have to deal with as an entrepreneur. You know, not everyone's going to love your, you know, brand new, never, never seen before idea. Um, mm-hmm. Both companies who, you know, people who've got absolutely no experience in podcasting whatsoever will have a very strong opinion on what a podcast is. 
But then also there are people who work in the podcasting industry, like agencies, who are completely invested in what a podcast is and also reject the idea because it threatens, you know, their way of doing things, right? Like agencies thrive on selling services, you know, it's a time, they're selling their time essentially. And if you've got a tool that comes along and does it 10 times faster, then not everyone's going to love that. But there are many forward-thinking agencies who think, wow, great. And now I can create 10 times as many podcasts, not, oh, this threatens my business. So you have to find the the early adopters, the visionaries, the people at the, you know, the the left of the um the uh the technology adoption life cycle, you know, Jeffrey uh how was it Jeffrey Jeffrey Moore <laughs> crossing the chasm. Um and uh and this is what we're 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 working on. So I think in a startup, you need to have lots of conversations, you need to explore the different segments. I think that Rumble Studio has value across all the segments, the creators, the agencies, and the brands. Uh, but like I was saying um the the creators and the agencies probably require less product at the beginning to make more sense to be a beachhead market and the brands require more products which supports them from beginning to end um and that takes uh, you know longer to build and i think there needs to be more content and a more stable ux as well for for those uh, for those businesses to be able to use it productively that's my that's my feeling and I'm sure that you have some statistics in this domain about, let's say, what's the horizon for audio content marketing and how do you see the usage growing maybe during the last year in audio mm. content and also the reaction from the listeners. So if you could share a couple of statistics, some numbers, some interesting facts about the rise during the last year in audio. Um, I think the investment in podcasting, and that's usually measured in terms of like how much companies are spending on ads, is growing at 30% CAGR. Um, maybe that's a, that figure is like a year or two old. Um, I know that right now it's about a billion and a half in the US alone spent on podcast ads. Uh, it's just kind of a, you know, a benchmark figure that you can, you can keep an eye on how much companies are spending. Measuring how much they're spending on creating audio themselves, I think is harder to measure. Uh, and I don't have the figures for that. Uh, and they're saying that podcasting will be a $4 billion industry by 2024. So to, it's going from one in 2021 to one and a half now to four. So it's, it really is, is jumping up. Content marketing as a whole, I think, is experiencing something like a 17 or 20% CAGR. And that includes like blogging and email marketing and all, and all of this stuff. Um, and branded podcasts, the, uh, and that means companies creating podcasts for themselves, is growing even faster. It's growing something that the last figure I saw was like 60% CAGR. So companies are catching up, I think. Now they realize, oh yeah, podcasting is a thing. Our, you know, our customers and our potential customers are listening to podcasts on a daily basis. We don't have a podcast. Why not? You know? So that's the market that's really catching up, I think, now that they're now that the audience is in place. We are close to wrap up. The time just mm. flow away. So this is not exactly a very peculiar, innovative question, but I like to ask it because it really gives very good insights about your learning curve. And what advice would you give yourself now, two years back? And what would you have done differently? What you could suggest other founders in your situation where they are, they almost made it, but they still have some things to nail and also... Uh, provide and do well the advice i'd give to founders is yeah don't underestimate the, the power of personal branding and a podcast is like in my opinion the best way to do that and it's a long-term proposition doing a podcast you can't just create six episodes and, and you know change your life you need to do it consistently every week for at least a year and then you'll start to see some significant results from it i think that's been my experience anyway 
Um, and I, I think so now is the time to start, even if you're an entrepreneur who hasn't started their business, it's a great first step to, to doing that. Um, and the other one is to find a, a co-founder who's complimentary, even if you uh, don't agree with them on everything, is to not choose uh, a friend who you get along with, but is very similar to you, because you'll find that you're both doing the same kind of work. And there's this you know, whole load of work that's just not getting done, is to find somebody who, does, who can do what you can't do and, and, uh, and work together to, to build a vision. Okay. So sure let's I mean. just jump two years back now. Is the first day is the day you you meet your co-founder, mm. and you know what's coming if you go this way. What would you shift? <laughs> uh, We are in a time machine now, so take your time. What would I change about my co-founder? I think maybe maybe it'd be a, be a little bit clearer about what it is that you want to build. Um, and ask more questions about what it is that they want to build, like and what it, and what kind of company they want to build. Like, be a bit bit more upfront. Um, for example, are we building a fully remote company or a hybrid company or a company that's going to work in an office? For example, um, because otherwise, these decisions you're taking different decisions at uh, different points in the business. And um, like in our case. Um, my co-founder is, is is fully remote doesn't live in Paris so now like he lives in Lille which is up north and, and you know too far to come for well it's, it's fine to come for the day but you're not going to do it every day you know um, and so that creates distance between the two co-founders and then some of the employees our dev team particularly those they're in the south of France so you know I, I've only ever seen them once so now we're a kind of a hybrid team and I don't think we ever really discussed that at the beginning It's not something that bothers me, but it's 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 quite a big decision for your company, and I don't remember ever having a conversation about it. It just business happened, mother, right? basically, it, it's related yeah. to business mother, yeah. Yeah, so so I would say this kind of a thing. I mean, it's easy to say plan it in advance. Sometimes you just don't know, right? Some things happen serendipitous, serendipitously, um, but uh, but yeah, like to maybe be a bit more upfront about what you want from the company, the type of company you want to build, the product who you're going after, how fast you want to move as well, like whether you want to go down the VC route or when you want to like go slow and try and bootstrap it a bit more or take as little investment as possible. These kinds of things. Some of these we, we had conversations about, but not everything. And I would say you need to be a bit more upfront about, about stuff. Yeah. Your last questions. Yeah. What keeps you moving and what keeps you up at night now? God. Well, um, the product keeps me up at night because I'm a product manager in my blood and it's never never good enough for me you know as, as Doris can tell you uh, so that that makes me lose sleep like the the speed at which we're we're shipping features and the the ux issues of the of the products which you know like because uh, i want it to be perfect you know um and getting enough users in time for a seed raise like this is uh, this is the thing that keeps me up as well it's just uh, it's a constant race to build enough awareness and and uh, and get people onto the the product and so that we can convince investors to get to the next hurdle and this is what you know if you ask any any founder who's gone through the the journey as as I understand and the people that I've spoken to is you're just constantly racing to the next milestone to in order to get more money into your company to to keep it moving because SaaS tools are very expensive to to build they don't make a huge amount of money at the at the beginning all the value comes at the end you know like when you have exponential growth Um, and so you're just you're, you're constantly investing in the future, basically, and uh, it's uh, it's an exhausting experience. <laughs> But yeah. And the positive side, what keeps you moving? 
what keeps me moving it's uh the the slow realization that the the idea that we had you know two years ago is actually happening conversations like this you know like talking about it having a chance to tell the world about this thing that we just imagined and then actually having you know people use the product i mean for me one of the most satisfying things is seeing our our initial users publish podcasts made on rumble you know i love that there was the the voice bot podcast he did two podcasts uh canvassed opinion in the voice technology world um put it together got his editor to put a new spin on it actually created a slightly different format that we hadn't thought about internally because we experiment with different uh, audio formats um gave us some ideas of how we can improve the product that was just immensely satisfying um and and yeah just uh, and having a team as well like that's the other great thing is like you know the the growth team are all in paris we've got an office thanks to our accelerator have our startup accelerator in uh, stats which is the uh, the world's biggest startup hub apparently um and yeah just being together working with a, a team of young like really enthusiastic team members are all like doing their best to make podcasts make the social media you know email marketing like doing all of the stuff that, that we need to, to get the message out um as well as giving feedback on the product and and just supporting each other that's pretty cool as well you know it's my first experience of leading a team being in any kind of true leadership position um because you know as a product manager you you lead by influence and not authority as they say um you can't tell anyone what to do but this is my first you know i'm the manager people report to me kind of role um and uh yeah so far so good it's going all right you know i couldn't ask for ask for more in terms of my team so that's pretty satisfying it seems like you had a tough learning curve and it's all about execution from now on mm. and uh, just a good spirit because I, i truly believe in what you're doing i invite my investors network and vcs to take a look at what you're doing i for sure will test everything you have because I want to see how I can integrate this into my work. And I already see some options. Great. I love to test and uh, find new ways of using things. So yeah, you can count on that. I wish you the best of luck. And um, hopefully Rumble Studio will be a household name in the audio podcasting like industry. Because it's it's really something you can use in so many different places. And we already discussed all the benefits. So Thank you. This was a, an interesting discussion. I enjoyed it a lot. And all of your insights, I hope uh, they will help other founders in similar situations or just to grab some ideas that maybe they just have a glimpse they got right now, even if they are maybe more involved with their businesses. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. This has been a, a really, uh, really interesting conversation and, uh, and a rare opportunity to sort of really express Really what's on my mind and make me reflect on the, the decisions I'd made as well. Not all the, the podcasts I appear on are, are this in-depth. And uh, I congratulate you as a host for having a great show. So thank you very much. Subscribe to Christina's podcast and stay connected through her social media channels too.